question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, Vancouver, and on CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, Burnaby, and CJSF.ca, and available also as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On today's program, we remember urban scholar and activist Neil Smith, who passed away on September 29th at the age of 58. Neil vocally advocated for everyone's right to the city. His writing and activism centered around struggles for social justice in the city. We'll honor and recognize Neil's life and work by hearing a critical talk he gave on urban politics and urban security. This show's for you, Neil. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. And as I mentioned, uh, Neil Smith, um, scholar activist, um, urban geographer, and um, I should add a critical urban geographer um, who uh, really brought a radical perspective and understanding and critique um, to the forefront in all the work that he did, um, both um, within the walls of academia and on the ground um, for struggles that were in, you know, New York or, you know, Toronto or wherever he was at um, writing about um, working with activists um, and uh, standing in solidarity. Um, Neil Smith is somebody who's really profoundly shaped the way that I see the city um, and that I see um, struggles for social justice. So um, really a a huge loss. Um, And as we recognize Neil, um, I want to just give you a sense of some of uh, the, the stuff that he has um, written on over the years um, and posted on the mainlander.com. And this is um, Vancouver's place for progressive politics, um, a blog dedicated to um, uh, a number of different important discussions uh, from a progressive analysis. Um, and Jeff Dirksen, who is associate professor um, in the Department of English at Simon Fraser University, uh, posted um, or wrote an article for the Mainlander that was posted there um, uh, just recently, and um, I'm going to read uh, that article. Again, Jeff Dirksen. The world has lost a key thinker and an inspirational person. The geographer Neil Smith passed away in New York early in the morning of September 29, 2012. Neil's work on uneven development, the production of nature, gentrification, and neoliberalism provide a, cr- a crucial map for academics, activists, and anyone interested in social justice and the city. Neil was a prolific writer and editor. His engaging writing is marked by its analysis, its humor, and its conviction. His uneven development, nature, capital, and the production of space, um, published first in 1984 and then uh, republished in 2010, uh, New Urban Frontier, Gentrification, and the Revanchist City, published in 1996, and The End Game of Globalization, published in 2005. These are all books that have pushed critical thinking forward while being useful books that would, ha- that would have a place on anyone's bookshelf. Neil lived and worked in New York and Toronto, but he always has always um, a strong Vancouver connection. In the photograph um, that is posted on the mainlander.com, Neil is giving a community talk that was organized by the Downtown Neighborhood Council, Vivo, and Urban Subjects at the Japanese Language School in Vancouver in the spring of 2011. Neil's intellectual and community generosity were boundless. On the visit to Vancouver, he talked on three venues, culminating in a packed talk at Vivo, where he elaborated his new work um, 
on the revolutionary imperative. His ongoing engagement with Vancouver included an essay in Stan Douglas, Every Building on 100 West Hastings, published in 2003, and also a manifesto for the poetry of the future, published in 2011. In his late work on revolution, Neil's historical and spatial analysis merges with his belief in the ability for revolutionary agency to crack the forces of injustice and capital. Quote, neoliberalism is dead, but dominant, Neil speculated. But for that same reason, there is much to anticipate in our time of crisis. Quote, the future is indeed radically open in a way unprecedented just months ago. End quote. Sadly, we won't have Neil in that future, but his spirit and his works are guideposts for us all. The website at the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at the City University of New York, which Neil founded and where I was lucky enough to work with him, has many moving tributes pouring in. And again, that's Jeff Dirksen, Associate Professor in the Department of English at Simon Fraser University, uh, writing um, about Neil's life and um, his work both within, both scholarly and um, on the ground. Um, involved in the many different organizing and and activities, uh, social justice activities that he uh, was involved in. So you can check that out. Again, that's at themainlander.com, and I encourage you uh, to check that out. And on the program, uh, we're going to be hearing from Neil Smith um, from a lecture um, from going back to September 2010, and uh, the lecture is Urban Politics and Urban Security. And uh, without further ado, um, you're going to first hear an introduction um, uh, of uh, introducing Neil, um, and uh, then shortly thereafter, um, he will get into his talk. And just to preface um, the talk that he will give um, over the next, uh, you know, 50 minutes or so, um, he's talking about uh, urban security from a critical perspective and the way that um, we can look at that, look at this um, post 9-11, um, but looking at the origins of urban policing and ur- urban security um, and the way that it, it plays out and is articulated um, across space through cities um, in particularly important ways. And um, especially looking at how real estate development and the real estate um, investment in the city certainly has a, has a crucial role in the way that um, policing of urban populations um, occurs. So uh, without any further ado, um, this is uh, going to be Neil Smith. Good evening uh, and welcome. Thank you very much for coming. I think we have a, we have a treat Sorry. in store for us tonight. Uh, I invited Neil Smith to the GSD in 1992 or 1993. It's almost 20 years ago when the second edition of his uh, um, book, Uneven Development, uh, had just uh, come out. And it's really wonderful to, uh, to have him back. I haven't seen him for almost 20 years until 10 minutes ago. We actually tried to get Neil here last year, and for a variety of reasons it wasn't possible, so it's great that he's, he's here. I'm sure most of you are familiar with his work, but uh, just wanted to remind everyone that... that um, <clears throat> Neil is at City University of New York uh, at the Graduate Center, uh, where he uh, is basically in both anthropology and geography. Last year, I think, uh, we had, was it last year that we had uh, David Harvey, who is a colleague uh, of Neil's, and they, they work together uh, pretty much uh, in, uh, in those areas at the same school. So they really have a kind of um, uh, powerhouse uh, operation. Uh, more recently, Neil has also been appointed at the University of Aberdeen. He's originally from, from, from uh, Scotland as the 6th century chair in geography and uh, social theory. So um, that's, that's quite a grand uh, title and he spends part of the time in Aberdeen. Uh, hopefully when the weather is a bit warmer than the winter months. Uh, Neil was trained as a geographer and uh, his research uh, focuses on a, on a number of areas, but really the intersection between space, nature, social theory, and history. He was, until recently, uh, the director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics, uh, 
at, uh, at his school. And I think a lot of the work that uh, <clears throat> he has done started with the, the research and investigations on gentrification, especially part of the work on, on Tompkins Square, um, and really the relationship between uh, real estate, uh, its impact on, on uh, urban development. Uh, I'm, and I, I'm sure that the discussion or the presentation tonight also builds on some of these, uh, some of these issues about the value uh, of place. His interests in social theory include uh, political economy and Marxism and lie behind his theoretical work on uneven development, the book that I also mentioned before. From the global to the local scales, he argues our spatial worlds are constructed and reconstructed as expressions of social relations and especially as expressions of capitalist social relations. Uneven development is in many ways the hallmark of capitalism. More recently, he has been studying the geography of the American century, trying to understand the ways in which global economic development in the 20th century up to and including so-called globalization represent specific expressions of U.S. power and responses to it. This has also led to considerable research on the construction of geographical scale. He co-edits Society and Space and sits on the numerous editorial boards, including Social Text, Capitalism, Nature, and Socialism. After an even development, he went on to publish The New Urban Frontier, Gentrification, and The Revanchist City, published by Rutledge. And then more recently, 2002, American Empire, Roosevelt's Geographer, and The Prelude to Globalization. Uh, would you please welcome Neil Smith. Well, I'm delighted to be back uh, uh, here today and to get a chance to talk about some work which I think will suggest some continuities uh, with the ideas that the motion suggested to you, uh, but also strikes out in a slightly new direction uh, as well. And in that sense, it's slightly experimental uh, there are some ideas jumbling around in here. I'm not at all convinced I've got them all sorted out. Uh, never mind get them sorted out in the right order. Uh, so I'm looking forward to a little bit of help as well as uh, being able to present some of this, uh, this material. Uh, I, I just recently I came across... I, I, I'd always heard uh, the story from years and years ago that T.S. Eliot as a poet had... Uh, always said that if his butler couldn't understand what he was saying in his poetry, he should rip it up, throw it away and start again. And I'd always taken a certain uh, inspiration from that, especially since I didn't really understand what was going on in T.S. Eliot's poetry half the time. Uh, but I found, I think, an even better version of the same kind of sentiment, uh, which actually comes from Margaret Mead. You can tell that being in this anthropology department is... Uh, rubbing off on me somewhat. If one cannot state a matter clearly so that even an intelligent 12-year-old can understand it, Margaret Mead said once, one should probably remain within the cloisters hall, cloistered halls of the university and the laboratory until one gets a better grasp of one's subject matter. So uh, at my own peril, I'm inviting you to use that as a yardstick uh, for what I'm going to try and sketch out today. And... Uh, see if indeed they've let me loose from the cloistered halls of CUNY Graduate Centre in the middle of Manhattan for today. I've made it all the way to Harvard, uh, somewhat cloistered too, of course. Uh, whether I'm worthy to be let out in the streets or not, that'll be for you to judge. Uh, I'd like to thank Motion. I'd like to also thank Brooke uh, King, who did a lot of the arrangement for, for, for this visit. The title that I gave... Uh, was urban politics, urban security. And I have to say, in line with this being an experimental talk, I wasn't quite sure what I was grasping toward. So perhaps I'd like to add a subtitle just to help you to focus, which uh, would be uh, to give it its, its Sunday name, Urban Politics, Urban Security, or Securing Accumulation uh, as, as the fuller title. So the focus is indeed going to be much more on urban security because it seems to me that in the last uh, at least a decade and more, uh, much of the kind of research we've done in the broad fields of urban studies, urban research, uh, have been veering toward the question of security in one form or another. Uh, 
in practice, of course, the signs of what I'd like to think of as a securitized urbanism are everywhere around us, from CCTV surveillance to uh, body scanners to get into buildings to uh, bag checks to biometrics and eye pattern recognition technologies. To go to my dentist in Manhattan, I actually have to have my eyes biometrically tested to make sure I am who they think I am. I would have thought going to the dentist would already have confirmed that you were who you were, but apparently this added layer of eye, in addition to dental security, is required for me to get a root canal. Uh, all of the other uh, forms of securitization with which you're familiar uh, apply here. Gated urbanism, of course, for those of us interested in landscapes, uh, questions of security on the internet, and so on, especially if, you, if you've been watching the news the last couple of days, the uh, attacks on the Iranian internet system uh, seem fairly clearly to have come from the US or Israel or Britain or some amalgam thereof. Um, so the question of security has really become uh, a central issue, I think, for those of us looking at, at cities. A recent article uh, in a book by Michael Sorkin, Indefensible Space, an edited collection, this article by Jer Jeremy Nymath called The Closed City, actually documented that within the financial and downtown districts of LA, New York, and San Francisco, uh, there was an average of about 18% of the supposedly public open space was in fact uh, under uh, some form of evidence securitization. What was even more interesting about his figures was the unevenness between them. That San Francisco was a mere 4.5% of that downtown financial area. Uh, New York City came in at just over 18%, and LA came in just under 50% at 48% of downtown and the financial district of LA that was securitized uh, in what we would normally have thought of as previously public space. Now, also in the urban literature, there's a broadening of this documentation of insecuritization, if you like. And I think here in particular of work that's being done on children, uh, parental hypervigilance, uh, the nanny cams that are stuck into uh, teddy bears, so that <clears throat> parents can monitor the nannies looking after their kids, uh, those kinds of things. There's a whole series of articles by a variety of folks uh, in a book called Fear, Critical Geographies and Urban Day Life by Rachel Palin and Susan Smith. Uh, Cindy Katz in particular, a number of other feminists have been the ones who have been pursuing that kind of work. Uh, outside North America and uh, Europe, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a similar picture and it's not so novel a picture as well. That the securitization of cities from uh, Dubai to Sao Paulo, uh, from Baghdad to, Gab to Kabul, uh, is old news uh, for many of us. And in particular, especially if we think about Baghdad and Kabul, Kabul, what we're looking at is a securitization that's connected to a certain nexus of war and development. So all of that comes into the picture. Having said that, and, and given you that kind of broad terrain, it seems to me that there are three events, uh, really, that I want to focus on uh, as uh, probably major events in uh, U.S. urbanism, at least, over the last decade or more. And I say this, and I'll come back to this in a minute, I say this on top of having actually been at the Toronto G20 uh, police clampdown in June of this year, uh, where, although I think many of those events were not well reported in the press uh, in, in the United States, it was actually a very noteworthy event uh, there was something like 1,200, 1,150 to 1,200 people arrested. Uh, fully three quarters of those simply released after the event without charges, uh, a tactic that had been used, of course, during uh, the 2004, as, as we say in New York, the Republican National Convulsion uh, of 2004. Uh, but this is particularly noteworthy insofar as it was happening in Canada, 
which at least for those of us with a bit of a distance perhaps from the Canadian border think of Canada as a somewhat meek country, uh, the kinder, gentler neighbour to the north, uh, until that is Stephen Harper became Prime Minister, I suppose. And we think especially of Toronto in terms of the old uh, somewhat British uh, royalist framing of Toronto as Toronto the good. So here you had a rampage and a siege by police in downtown Toronto in June of this year, another of the signs of uh, dramatic securitization. I've written a paper on this with uh, uh, Deborah Cowan, who's at the uh, Department of Geography in Toronto, uh, and, and that paper's coming out in Human Geography soon. I'm not going to go into that much during this presentation, but if you want to talk about um, events in Toronto, uh, I can do that. The three events in the US that I really want to touch on uh, it should be quite obvious. The first, of course, is 9-11. Uh, we always think of 9-11 as the moment when uh, New York City, or in, in the language of the New York Times on September 12th of that year, America was attacked. New York City was attacked. It was an attack on the city. What's actually fallen out, and what's very interesting, of course, is it's always Washington, D.C. There were more than 100 lives lost uh, as a result of the plane that hit the Pentagon. And of course, that's a much more embarrassing uh, lack of security uh, in a city in the United States insofar, of course, as it was the headquarters of US global militarism that was attacked and effectively taken out during that event. Uh, so there's been a fallout from that event in really two cities and a field in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, fallout from that event that has been global uh, in geographical terms, but global too, perhaps in more metaphorical terms, spanning everything from uh, physical reconstruction of cities to senses of social insecurity and even psychic or existential insecurity. Second event, of course, is Hurricane Katrina. Uh, in 2005 uh, and what this highlighted I think was a social or socio-ecological insecurity uh, of cities in the United States. Uh, an extraordinary amalgam, I'll go into this a bit later, an extraordinary amalgam of social and ecological vulnerability uh, of the city of New Orleans that was highlighted in that event. And the third event of course too is the subprime crisis and the way in which uh, the subprime mortgage crisis not only became a means of extraordinary urban insecurity in social and economic terms in the first place in the United States, but of course throughout the housing market and eventually it was the event that triggered, if not, if it didn't exactly cause, it triggered a global financial recession, which many economists have come to call the Great Recession. Now it doesn't take much imagination to read through the Great Recession to sense the desperation involved in that nomenclature. Uh, the Great Recession was meant to explain that this was a recession bigger than other recessions, this was pretty bad, but it wasn't quite yet the Great Depression. Um, so there was a sense of, of, of limits and of moderation to how bad that recession was, uh, whether it's over or not. Uh, the Bureau of Economic Statistics, Bureau of Economic Analysis, notwithstanding, uh, is, not, is not clear whether there's a second uh, downturn. Uh, remains very much to be seen. So, with that kind of landscape laid out, if I can put it that way, uh, what's new here? I think the underlying intent of much of the literature that's talking about urban security, urban securitization, and the insecurity of urban areas is very much to suggest that something new is afoot. Um, and I think what I want to try and do is, is, is as much a diagnosis of what might be new and what might not be new uh, as, as it is an analysis. There are really four kinds of responses, I think, that we've had to this, at least let's say for now, intensified securitization of the city and intensified attention to questions of securitized urbanism. And the first, and I think this will be easily recognizable, the first response really to the question of urban security and securitization has been to say that we're living through an exceptional moment, most broadly. And this argument, that this is an exceptional moment, uh, this argument gets considerable uh, intellectual buttressing from the work, of course, of uh, Agamben, whose work on State of Exception 
the state of exception uh, has been very popular uh, to the point of fashionable in the last few years, perhaps in the last year or so, not so much so, too many so's in that sentence. Um, uh, Agamben's argument, of course, uh, was that under particular circumstances, uh, we could see the state operating in quite exceptional ways. The second response, I think, was uh, different and was really a lament about the extent to which this securitization of the city uh, and this uh, uh, and sense of insecuritization and the need to act to defray the effects of insecuritization uh, have led to a certain privatization of public space, a loss of public space. Indeed, the uh, subtitle of uh, the article uh, by uh, Nymeth called The Closed City that I referred to earlier uh, is downtown security zones and the loss of public space. So that sense of the loss of public space, I think, is also very current right now. Um, uh, as a response. The third uh, response, I think, though, is really that of the militarization of the city. Uh, there's an emerging literature uh, about exactly the militarization of the city, and I'm thinking especially of the work by Steve Graham, who's a D uh, Durham uh, uh, geographer, who's come out with a book just recently called Cities Under Siege, The New Military Urbanism. Uh, but he had a, an edited collection earlier called, I think it was Cities, Wars and Terror, or Cities, Wars and Terrorism, which some of you may know. Uh, but Cities Under Siege, the new military urbanism. And that has really gathered quite a lot of traction, I think, in the literature. And there's some very interesting material in there. The fourth response which we're seeing, and this is coming from a rather different position, I think, is a lot of the work and a lot of the discussion that's being held around questions of the right to the city. Uh, and again, as I'm going to uh, obviously stress, the arguments about the right to the city aren't just from this latter 10-year period. They, of course, have a longer history to them. Uh, but nonetheless, they represent, if you like, a critique uh, in some ways of the uh, securitization of the city, but the kinds of social, economic, political uh, and more psychic uh, entailments that come with that securitization. So what indeed is new here? How do these four responses in one way or another suggest to us that there really is something new, that we're in a new moment when it comes to the nexus between security and the city? And I'm going to argue in the first place, I'm going to go on and contradict myself, of course, but uh, I'm going to argue in the first place that no, there's not much that you can pick out from these explanations that suggests some really dramatically new moment uh, historically. First, let's take Agamben's uh, argument about the state of exception, and especially perhaps, to be somewhat fair to Agamben, the way in which his argument has been taken up uh, as much as uh, uh, the argument itself. Uh, and here I think we only need to think back to the work of if, uh, Max Weber comes most immediately to mind, who, of course, in the Economy and Society uh, book, uh, Max Weber says, and th this is very rarely quoted, but in fact, uh, I, I went back and found the quote, the claim to the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force in the enforcement of its order is exactly what defines the state. The definition of the state itself is the claim to be able to use legitimate force legitimate violence uh, in, in defense of the social order. So the claim to exceptionalism is already written into what the state is. Now, here's a case where Weber isn't arguing anything especially different from what Vladimir Lenin, for example, might have argued about the capitalist state. The parallel there is fairly exact if you go back and look at uh, uh, Lenin on the state and revolution, for example, which would probably be the best place to go. But it's also thoroughly consonant with uh, Walter Benjamin's arguments as well on violence, uh, where Benjamin, this is on a, in a chapter on critique of violence in Reflections, where Benjamin says, and this is the quote, the law's interest in a monopoly of violence vis-a-vis -vis individuals is not explained by the intention of preserving legal ends, 
but rather by that of preserving the law itself. That violence, when not in the hands of the law, threatens it, not by the ends that it may pursue, but by its mere existence outside the law. Now, in case the 12-year-olds who are supposed to uh, be monitoring this are indeed in the audience, I'd like to actually just translate that Benjamin quote, which gets a little um, uh, convoluted, into there's a moment where Richard Burton as Julius Caesar, uh, or no, I think as Mark Antony in, 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 in the movie on Julius Caesar, says um, something like, uh, as he's setting off on an expedition, he says, Look after the legions, because the legions are what make the law legal. And it seems to me that's exactly what Weber and Lenin and Benjamin in very different kinds of ways are saying. I've actually looked for that quote. I would love to find that it actually did come from Julius Caesar himself. You know, take care of the legions, because they're what make the law legal. I would love to find that quote in Julius Caesar, but so far uh, I haven't managed to do so. It's in the film, and so... Um, <laughs> Yes, you recognize the dilemma, thank you. <laughs> the second question, uh, if we're going to think, not what's, what's so new and what's not so new, is really that of the loss of public space. And here I think it's, we can, we can uh, dispatch with this argument much more uh, quickly. In the first place, I think the separation of private and public space is somewhat of a misnomer in itself. If we look at the kinds of public spaces that, that many of us like to think of as public, what actually makes them public? And where's the boundary between private and public space? If we think about a mall, actually if you think about any commercial location, virtually, it's a private space. It's almost certainly privately owned. It could be publicly owned spaces, but almost all privately owned, one form or another. In the case of a mall, there's certainly security police around and so forth. Uh, but the very fact of that being a private space uh, the success of it as a private space is dependent entirely on it being at the same time a public space. A mall that's private space that locks people out is not going to get very far. Right? And the same is true all over the, the examples of public space that we have. That in practice, the distinction between private and public space uh, is a very, very difficult one to make. And the fact that it's become fuzzier uh, and that the fuzziness of the boundary between private and public space is now erring toward the priority of the private over the public really shouldn't surprise us too much. In fact, at one level, I think a lot of the lament about the loss of the public space really represents, in many ways, a kind of wishful Jacobsian liberalism, Jane Jacobs, that would be, uh, with a sort of 18th century ideal for, pub for, for public space uh, that's available for the masses. Uh, and I think if we were to push that idea of public space too far, we would be able to poke significant holes in it. I'm going to leave that for now for your imaginations, but if you want to, we can come back to it. The third argument, and I think this is a much more serious argument, is that of the militarization of the city, uh, the, the Steve Graham argument. And I think that what Graham is doing here is capturing something very real. Uh, the kinds of wars that we think of, the world wars of the 20th century, for example, uh, the wars of the 19th century, certainly through a Euro-centered perspective, those kinds of wars tended to take place in much wider open spaces. Uh, the wars of conquest, whether we're talking about Rome or whether we're talking about uh, European colonialism, were often wars of wide open spaces, more than wars of cities. Not that cities weren't involved, of course they were. Um, Today, those are not the kinds of wars that jump up to us immediately in our imaginations concerning what's going on. Um, the wars are in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. Uh, the wars in uh, the Balkans in the 1990s were very much city-based and city-oriented. Uh, and so I think that there is something being captured in this notion of the militarization of the city uh, with uh, the nexus of war and urbanism. And yet, of course, if we go back and scratch the historical surface, uh, that too is not really new. We know about the sacking of cities in the past as part of uh, warfare, whether it was Baghdad itself uh, in times past or whether it was uh, cities uh, such as Paris 
uh, or, or other cities within the European uh, orbit uh, that we might uh, not see as clearly as we would see the battlefields of the Second World War or the First World War. And so I think that it's very difficult to make the argument about the novelty of the militarization of the city, especially, too, if we broaden out this notion of the militarization of the city. Cities have always been military strongholds. Uh, the very form of the city, the walled city, the fortress city, the city of stockade, these were always militarized places. These were places of power that were militarily protected. And so it shouldn't really surprise us today to find that perhaps in a cyclical kind of way, that emphasis on the militarization of the city has again come back. The more interesting question, it seems to me, is not just the observation of the militarization of the city, but to what extent is it a reasonable generalization? Aren't we forgetting about the wars in Central Africa, for example, uh, in making this argument? Uh, and why would there be a cyclical shift back uh, to a militarization of the city now? Uh, compared to in other periods. The fourth uh, argument uh, that uh, I raise here is, is really uh, that of the right to the city. And I'm not going to say too much about it here because I want to really finish off with the right to the city. But it seems to me that there's a very different tenor to the argument about the right to the city uh, that's going on here. But very much uh, evoked, at least in the last decade or more, uh, as in some ways a direct or indirect response to the question of urban securitization. So, uh, at best, I would say, we can't find the concrete evidence in those kinds of responses to suggest that there's a new kind of regime of securitized urbanism operating. Uh, let me switch gears and move kind of sideways and in a sense go back to the empirics of the three events now that I raised at the beginning in US urbanism. Uh, Katrina, the subprime crisis, and 9-11. And begin to look at them. Because I think if we begin to interrogate these three events, we begin to see something uh, of a commonality across the three events. At least I'm going to do uh, a bit of a job to try and pull out a commonality between the three events that might push us in the direction of seeing some kind of novelty to urban securitization. So let's first take Katrina. Now I probably don't have to really repeat um, uh, the argument here that of course there's no such thing as a natural disaster. Um, even earthquakes as disasters are not natural. The causes, the events themselves are natural, no question. Actually there is a, a there's geological evidence that earthquakes can be fomented uh, by the pumping of liquids into various faults on the face of the earth. So it's, it's possible to lubricate, quite literally, earthquakes. Uh, but that's not really what we're, happening, what we're talking about here. And that's a, that's a relatively extreme event. The events themselves may be rooted in nature, but as a disaster, uh, they're not natural events. Um, What's most interesting about Katrina is actually, I would argue, the socio-political ecology of the event. And here I'm going to point toward a series of shifts that took place both locally, uh, nationally and globally that help us to frame and understand how Katrina could, could have taken place. I'm going to do this very sketchily, and some of this will be familiar to you, perhaps some of it less so. In doing so, I'm going to resort as a, some sort of a shorthand to... Uh, the notion of the neoliberal uh, moment in capitalist development. Um, and I, 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 I do so with some uh, sense of caution because I think the language of neoliberalism is, is widely overused and underdefined right now. Uh, I think there is a specificity to neoliberalism. Neoliberalism literally is a hearkening back to 18th and 19th century models of liberalism in an economic sense, which emphasized private property, competition, uh, the state's role as perpetrator of that competition, and the belief that the social good would result from all of these things, from the competition and the private property uh, and the social relations on what they were built. Uh, however, we have to be aware that today uh, the language of neoliberalism has been somewhat degraded 
uh, and generalized as as much an epithet as an analysis. Um, it wasn't me what done it, gov. It was neoliberalism, you know, that kind of um, appeal. The, of course, we have to see, too, on the other side that there's a certain post-structuralist uh, argument of the same sort. Uh, uh, it wasn't me, gov. It was the discourse what done it, right? So relatively new ideas that have a sharp critical edge to them often become uh, mulched into quite blunt ideas. And so in talking about neoliberalism here and, and not doing much more to define it and resharpen it, I'm hoping that you'll at least bear with me and, 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 and give me the benefit of the doubt, uh, govs. The, the Katrina event, the first of the three. Um, now there was a 6,000 page report, I have not read all of it, uh, that the Corps of Engineers produced in June, two, May 2006, I think it was, uh, that documented a lot of the conditions that went up to uh, the Katrina event and why it was that, the, this isn't exactly their figure, but perhaps 1,500 people died in a meteorological event that really should not have killed anyone. Um, and there's a number of issues that become quickly apparent. On the one hand, the neoliberalization of the local economy uh, at the hands of the national state uh, there was a devolution of power to the local economy. actually had a second result, which was a fragmentation of jurisdictions around uh, New Orleans, which meant that you had congressional districts competing with each other, you had separate, levy, uh, uh, separate uh, levy boards competing with each other for funds, and certain city officials, each representing different neighborhoods, also competing in ways that hadn't necessarily happened before. Uh, now, this was straight uh, uh, text and verse of uh, the neoliberalism revolution, if you like, of the 80s and 90s. That, that level of competition would replace the kind of public provisions that the state, at different scales, uh, had been accustomed to provide under a more Keynesian kind of a model. Uh, that led to a number of things. On the one hand, budgets at the centre were cut. The Corps of Engineers budget was cut by 80% uh, in the period leading up to Katrina. Uh, but it also meant that there was a patchwork, a very uneven fragmentation in the provision of funds for building and sustaining levies and for other water and, and ecological management uh, activities, uh, which became crucial uh, uh, when the hurricane hit. FEMA... Uh, the Emergency Management uh, Administration uh, was effectively shunted to the side of a much larger Homeland Security Department. Uh, again, you notice the connection between home, the domestic, homeland, and security that's coming in here. Hence, I think, the, the broader sense of, of urban securitization and insecuritization that's afoot. Not only was it shuffled to the side of the Department of Homeland Security, but it was given to a man, Michael Brown, whose previous uh, uh, acumen and experience had been in buying and selling Arabian racehorses. Not exactly the kinds of qualifications one might want for someone to do the emergency management uh, and post facto cleanup in a place like uh, New Orleans. Uh, the design of the canals. Uh, the canals themselves uh, were designed for commercial purposes, for purposes of getting uh, goods into and out of the port so that the port could compete with Houston, for example, and with other ports globally, uh, with not a lot of thinking about what this was going to do to the local ecology, to the wetlands, uh, to the water ecology of the area, and of course the connection uh, onto the city. And in the end what happened was that the, can uh, the canals became a major force a major source, rather, of funneling the water into the city uh, as a result of the hurricane, with levels in the canals two feet above the already heightened storm surge levels uh, in the broader outlying delta areas, and with the water moving inland uh, at something like ten times the velocity uh, that uh, it was moving outside the canals. And so the canals became these funnels for water into the city rather than out. When you piece that then together with the processes of gentrification, of suburbanization, uh, of the uh, wetland decimation 
that was taking place. Uh, all of this in the 1990s, 2000s, under an extraordinary expansion of property capitalism, if I can put it that way, that was affecting obviously not just New Orleans but much of the rest of uh, the country. Um, you see the ingredients for the disaster uh, that, that, that finally uh, happened. Um, there's a lot more that can be said about that. But just to give you a sense of uh, uh, comparison, uh, at the time, this hasn't really remained prominent in the news, but at the time there were some news stories that compared the response to Katrina with the responses, for example, in Cuba uh, to hurricanes, where without taking a position one way or another on the Cuban government or uh, anything like that. Nonetheless, there are in place these highly centralized forms of, um, uh, of, of, of moving people out of the way of hurricanes that come in. Uh, highly developed centralized plans that simply take over the bus systems of Cuba to get people out of the way of, of, of hurricanes coming in. The alternative in New Orleans, of course, was we assume you've got a car, get out on your own. And that literally is written into the pre-Katrina FEMA plans. You're on your own. Make good plans now. Um, so the neoliberal uh, framework of the prior 20-odd years had everything to do with that particular urban disaster. It created an insecurity in, uh, in, in New Orleans, and that's without even getting to the point of talking about the extraordinary levels of poverty, uh, the extraordinary levels of class and race uh, oppression that were going on in what, in most of the indicators at this period, showed New Orleans in, in, in a city that, that came up in most of the indicators as the poorest city, the most segregated city, uh, one of the most crime-ridden cities in the country. The second example that I wanted to take was the subprime crisis. And here the connection, I think, is going to be much more obvious to, if you like, the excesses of neoliberalism. Um, how did the subprime crisis come about? Well, I think everybody's got a fairly good, um, if sometimes sketchy, uh, sense of what was going on here. Uh, on the one hand, we can talk about deregulation uh, of the property industry, the mortgage industry, the financialization of mortgages in the form of securities and so forth. Uh, and, and these are the kind of technical details of, of, of what was happening inside the mortgage market. Uh, but uh, it's a broader question than that. And we see that Marxists and political economists of various sorts have always argued. Uh, Lefebvre was probably the sharpest to do so in, in, in the early days. David Harvey has picked up the work, and others have too, uh, to argue that as the, pro the profit rates in industrial production uh, uh, decline. Marx, of course, talked about a decline in the profit rate. Capital moves out of the industrial sector and it moves into other sectors that are more profitable. It moves, for example, into the financial sector, uh, which, of course, was exactly why mortgages were so sought after and with the deregulation of the, of the property markets were so available to be packaged and sold in the markets. Um, uh, there's a financialization of the uh, search for profits. But pro uh, capital also moves into the construction industry, it moves into real estate, it moves into the production of place, the production of space. And again, you can see the connection to Lefebvre's work here. And that was going on too at the same time. And in fact, we can make a connection to Lefebvre's larger argument, which comes in his book on the urban revolution, where he says that at some point, industrialization is going to be superseded by urbanization. Now, when I first read this, I thought, you know, as a good young Marxist, just having read his Marx two or three times to make sure he got it as right as he was about to get it, um, I thought, well, how, how can that be? The problem, of course, was that most of us as researchers and theorists were thinking about the construction market, the real estate industry, as somehow a service industry vis-a-vis uh, industrial production and we even I, 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 I don't think the left did this but in our work we even used um, categories like FIRE F-I-R-E, finance, insurance, real estate which of course lumps together finance and insurance with real estate 
Right? Now, uh, there's a problem here because finance and insurance certainly are about the circulation of capital. There's no profit made, by and large, in the finance and insurance industries. Whereas real estate is very much about construction. There's a massive amount of surplus value made in direct Marxist terms, but a massive amount of profit on the production of commodities made in the real estate industry. So our categories themselves were hiding us from the power and importance of the move of capital into the construction industry. Um, and, and that was happening uh, in, in, in the period in the 1990s, 2000s. It turns out, and, and if, if anything, the subprime crisis really is proof of uh, Lefebvre's arguments about, if not the supplanting, Lefebvre was great at making an argument. Um, he starts the urban re revolution by saying, the world is 100% urbanized. And you go, that's not true. And of course it's not true. And Lefebvre knew it wasn't true. And he goes on to explain why it's not true, but then comes back to tell you why it's true anyway. Um, and and with, uh, Lefebvre also notoriously did not edit anything he wrote. So there's sentences that just trail off into the middle of nowhere. So when you're reading Lefebvre, my, it took me a few reads of some of these books, but when you're reading Lefebvre, if you think it doesn't make sense, you're probably right. And I don't say that as a critique of Lefebvre. I mean, the brilliance of Lefebvre's insights were there. He just didn't always know how to follow them up and see them through to the end. But it seems to me that one of the sharpest insights was precisely this argument that the construction industry performs as what he called a kind of parallel sector uh, that, that attracts capital when industrial profit rates begin to slump. Uh, and indeed, what happened in Ireland by 2006, 23% of the gross domestic product in Ireland was, was the construction industry. 23%. Virtually a quarter of the economy was construction. And that's extraordinary. It's totally in tune with what Lefebvre was arguing. Uh, by comparison, I only have figures for Europe. Uh, Portugal and Spain came out at 17 to 18% each. They were the next highest, if you like. The average of all of the European countries uh, included within the EU at the time, 2006, was about 12% of the GDP was construction. Uh, I've looked in vain for figures for the United States, uh, and I'm not going to hazard a guess at where they would look. But what is important is that, of course, those figures, those percentage figures, increased dramatically in the period uh, leading up to the uh, subprime crisis of 2007. Um, now, there's some really interesting work that was done early before the crisis itself by Elvin Wiley and Kathy Newman. Kathy Newman at Rutgers, Elvin Wiley at UBC uh, in Vancouver, where they were actually tracking the mortgage market and doing it not from within the mortgage industry itself, but as, as somewhat critical academics. And you can see that by 2006, they're, they're, they don't quite predict the crash, but they effectively do. And, and they explain how the bureaucratic and political processes operating melded with the economic shifts uh, to give you a, a very good sense of the political economy of the crash to come without knowing that that's really what they were doing. So I'd recommend if people wanted to go back and read that work. The third case that I want to look at here is really... Um, that of 9-11, and so much has been said about this, that, uh, and, and, and the entailments of 9-11 for security and securitization are probably uh, very obvious. Uh, there are a million and one adventures that we could take out of the events of 9-11 that would make the connection to securitized urbanism. Uh, one that I'm finding particularly interesting, actually, is the connection between war and law. And uh, I think the work of David Kennedy, who's, uh, I guess he's in the Kennedy School, uh, David uh, uh, Kennedy, yeah. Law School, that's right, Law School, thanks, motion. Um, uh, his book on of law uh, and of war and law, or of law and war, I keep getting the order mixed up. Uh, it's very interesting in beginning to, this is really a, a, a sort of second generation critical legal studies work. Uh, that's being done. Uh, and it's very interesting in making the connections between the way, between law and war. Not in the old way where we thought that wars were supposed to be organized so that they stayed within the law. And there were separate kinds of laws that pertained to war. And the law represented a certain kind of limit on war. 
what Kennedy's argued is the flip of that, which is that there's something called lawfare. The law leads, in effect. The legal uh, statutes, the legal structures are established, the legal precedents organized ahead of the movement uh, that becomes war. In the old model, uh, there was a dependence on a kind of sense that war was exceptional and peace was the opposite of war. In the new model, that distinction between peace and war breaks down dramatically. And it seems to me that that's very, very redolent of what's been happening, at least since uh, 2001. Uh, but I'm going to argue also that it was happening beforehand as well. Um, to cut a long story short, it's, it's very easy and I think uh, widely accepted that 9-11 becomes the crux of the moment when the new regime of urban security and urban insecurity is instantiated, becomes real. It was 9-11, what did it, Gov? Um, now, I, I think that that's a, a real misreading of the history. Uh, in the same way that I've tried to suggest that there was a, a neoliberal uh, flavor to the creation of Katrina, a neoliberal uh, DNA to what became the subprime crisis, there was also uh, the, the, the events of 9-11 and the response to the events were themselves rooted in a very particular moment in history that we need to tr track back two or three decades before 2001. In particular, uh, by their own statements, Al-Qaeda was very clear that 9-11 was payback uh, for the U.S. becoming involved in, among other things, uh, the Iraq War of 1991, uh, but also in the larger uh, involvement in the Middle East by uh, U.S. capital and by the U.S. military. Now, what's going on here, of course, is a much larger uh, project this isn't just a war for oil. It wasn't that in 1991, much as Kuwait was used as an excuse then. And it wasn't a war for oil either, as much of the left tended to make the argument after 2001. Oil was involved. There's no way it was not involved. Uh, Eduardo Galeano has this great, uh, uh, this great sentence in, I've forgotten the name of the book now, Knights of Love and war. Somebody will know the title. I can't remember the title of the book. He has this great thing. He said, where, where oil is involved, there are no innocent deaths. Right? And that certainly pertains here. But this was about a lot more than a war on oil, or a war for oil and for resources. It wasn't a geopolitical war in the end. The tactics may have been geopolitical. The strategy was geoeconomic. This was a, a war about global economic control. It was a geoeconomic war. It was a war that was intended to be the last nails in the coffin of U.S. power, U.S. global power, uh, U.S. global economic power backed up by the military uh, over a global economy. And that was Neil Smith uh, speaking at um, Harvard University at a talk he gave in September 2010. And uh, Neil Smith passed away, unfortunately, um, on September 29th and uh, at the age of 58 and we're taking the hour to recognize um, and remember the work and uh, life of Neil Smith um, and what he's contributed um, to the way we think about cities um, and certainly as I mentioned um, has had a profound effect on the way that I have come to understand cities um, and the processes um, and uh, ultimately those involved um, in uh, really um, shaping the way that um, we live and the way that our, our urban life is organized. So anyway, on that note, I'm going to have a link uh, posted on thecityfm.org to that full talk. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it's about an hour and uh, 40 minutes long, so uh, not enough time in a one-hour program to uh, hear all of that. Um, but if you're interested, again, check out thecityfm.org. And uh, we're going to close out the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, this has been another edition of The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and we're here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and also um, find the past podcasts, um, a full archive at thecityfm.org, as well as uh, online content, um, web posts, um, other uh, urban-related um, uh 
information up there as well um, that you'll probably find interesting. Um, so, again, uh, thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll be back next week uh, for another hour of critical urban discussions. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. 